for now, uh, let's turn to Exodus. We'll be in chapter 13. And uh, we're going to begin uh, this morning looking at the issue of endurance and its necessary place in the Christian life. So would you join me in prayer before we, we go there? Father, this is one of those messages that we realize there's going to be tough things on the trail as we try to follow you and that we are commanded to have endurance and steadfastness and perseverance. We're to count it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And Lord, uh, this was something that uh, you modeled in these stories. And we seek you as we go through, may it not just be words, but your living word to us. Uh, We have lots of life situations here, Lord, that you can speak into quite freely. And we ask that you do so this morning. And uh, we give you great thanks for you riding in uh, on Palm Sunday, knowing what was facing you and being willing to be obedient and endure it itself. You are the role model this morning that we're aiming at. So we give this to you in hope. In your name, amen. All right, we're going to start uh, in Exodus 13, verses uh, 17 and 18. It reads like this. When Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, though that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Now the first thing I, I want us to just notice about this as we, as we read this passage um, is it says that God did not lead them by the short route. Have you ever wanted God to lead you by the short route? Like now. Like God fixed my finances, God fixed my health, God fixed my relationships, God fixed short. Like I mean yesterday, let's get on it. You're almighty, super powerful dude. You can jump on this thing. I'll be grateful. Thank you. Any of you ever prayed like that? Right? Let's just, let's just get this thing done. Okay? And it says that he did not do that. Uh, Egypt, to uh, the area that we would know as where the Philistines lived, along the Mediterranean Sea there, uh, was an 11-day walk. So it was less than two weeks, very simple, just walking right along the coastline and you you head up on that way. And it says that um, the reason is is that that's given, though it was shorter, it ran them into, uh, directly into a group of people that they were later destined to have a very troubled and embroiled history with, the Philistines. Recognize that name at all? Comes up in a lot of the stories. And there's another reason that doesn't appear in the text, but it's a logical deduction from the stories that we have gone through because we know that when Pharaoh let, him, let them go, he later regretted his decision, flipped his opinion, and then came after him. And so they would have been pinned between two enemies, both front and back, the Philistines in the front, the Egyptians in the back, and it's likely they would not have survived the encounter. And so God, knowing this, sends them on a roundabout route to the south. And I would just like to say something this morning in defense of God. Not that he needs defense, right? But just in defense of him. uh, Often when you have an interruption that is really irritating to you, be it going to work and you get a flat tire, being um, whatever, often we just get really agitated because it's gotten in the way of our goals. And uh, I have uh, many times tried to tell people, hey, be careful. You don't know what God's protecting you from. There's something you can't see that he can see that he knows if it were to carry out, it would not be good. 
And so he's actually protecting you in the midst of this interruption. Can you accept it as such? And it, it takes a certain mindset um, to be able to do that. And God did this for two reasons. One, he was going to rid them of the threat of Pharaoh, not the way they thought, but he was going to do it by the parting of the Red Sea. And then two, he has time to season them. What do I mean by season them? Uh, he has time to toughen them up for the events that they would face in the future. They were not coordinated as a group of people. Uh, they did not have a lot of infrastructure uh, as a group of people. They had been slaves for 400 years, so all the structure had been provided for them. They had to b- develop their own disciplines and routines as a nation. And so God's using this uh, to help them with that. The second point on this is, do you think they know this, the Israelites? Do you think they didn't know there was a shorter route? Right? Did God's wisdom make any sense to them? Probably not any more than it makes sense to us half the time, right? You can tell from the text in the following dialogues that they didn't agree with his plan or his route. Right? What's the big beef? We think you're an idiot. This is a stupid way and a stupid path to lead us on. Now, they don't say stupid in the Old Testament. They said things worse than that, so I'm being kind. All right? And the question again is, how about us? Do we react when we see God taking us along the long route instead of the short route? We're going to look at that this morning and what his purpose are. Let's go back to the beginning uh, when we started this series, remember the, the two initial purposes of why God led them in the desert. It's not what you would normally think uh, for reasons. But initial purposes was, one, to humble them. What does that tell you right out of the chute about the Israelites? They're proud, right? They're proud. Despite being slaves for 400 years, they are a proud and stubborn people. They've learned to be belligerent. All right. You know any other nation on the earth that tends to be strong, stubborn, and belligerent? The home of the free, right? And the proud? That's built right into our national psyche there. The other one was to test their hearts. God was using the circumstances to test the hearts to see if they would be loyal to him, to see if they would be faithful. Exodus 2020, just a little farther, says this. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not, be, that you may not sin. And the question would be, testing them in what? And I want to suggest this morning that he was testing them in endurance. He was testing them in regards to faith. And as we've seen, they did not cooperate too well with this process. Instead of allowing themselves to be tested by God and learn his discipline that he was trying to send their way, they flipped the circumstances around and used them as occasions to test God. In other words, they flipped it exactly opposite of what was supposed to be. Instead of them being tested, they used it to test God. Well, let's see if God is among us or not, is one of their statements in the stories that we've covered. You can uh, download the previous messages if you haven't been here and you want to catch up on that. They're on our website. You can... Go back and listen to some of those. But we found that they constantly grumbled and complained. Their cravings were out of control. 
They constantly envision going back to Egypt, which is called the Iron Furnace in Deuteronomy. Uh, the Sinai Desert was also called the same thing. And so they were kicking against the goads. And from a human standpoint, this is not strange. This shouldn't surprise us, right? We've seen it in ourselves. We've seen it in other people. Um, you often see a young man who resents authority and he's rebellious. And what does he do to uh, get away from home and to assert his independence and his authority and his rebellion? He joins the military. That should create a laugh, right? How many times have you seen that? Right? We call it jumping from the frying pan into the fire. And so when we, we look at this, we're dealing with something innately in our spirits. Innately, this is the fall right here. You're saying, what does the fall look like? Why do we need a Bible? And why do we need a Jesus? And why do we need a Savior? It's right here. Okay? It's our stubborn willfulness. It's our kicking against the goads when God's trying to get us to go in one direction and we're bucking them because we just flat out don't want to do it. We're dealing with their, in these stories, refusal to embrace the discipline of the Lord. It's hot. It hurts. It's dusty. We're thirsty. We're hungry. We're tired. Does any of that sound familiar? I was talking to a good friend and uh, his daughter's going through some difficult circumstances and uh, I was just asking him about the circumstance she was going through and his assessment of his daughter was that, and, and this was his quote, she just doesn't handle affliction very well. And when he said it, I went, oh my goodness. I thought, what an extraordinarily keen insight of a father's heart. He understood it wasn't just the illness or the circumstances she was going through that were tipping the whole thing. It was the fact that she didn't handle affliction very well. When it came her way, she just fell apart. And always looking for somebody else to fix it. How do we handle adverse circumstances? How do we handle our emotions when we find ourselves in the what the Bible calls the furnace of affliction. But even deeper than that, why would a God who loves us allow us to go through such trying circumstances? The way it's put in our world is how could a loving God allow that? If there's such a thing as a loving God, how could he allow these kind of things to happen? It's called the problem of evil. And uh, we don't have a lot of time to focus on it, but... What's the purpose behind that? Uh, if you don't understand the purpose, then often you're going to get really upset with the process. Okay? You've got to understand the purpose to know why it's worth your going through the process, why it's worth allowing God to do that. Um, we just recently uh, went through the book Raising a Modern Day Knight, and uh, Matt and Roger and I and Anthony Schultz with our guys, and we just had the ceremony in the back of Roger's home. It was a great time. But uh, Matt asked uh, Shannon if he'd come up and, and share a, a, a few words with the boys uh, during the ceremony. And what he shared was an absolutely unbelievable illustration of what we're talking about this morning. So I've actually asked him the, if he would come up and walk us through the illustration he used for the boys. So give Shannon a hand. Thank you, Shannon. 
Yes, I have, I have a sword. Uh, I wouldn't recommend standing on the wings with a sword on a normal Sunday morning. You might get tackled. I'm actually here to talk about my favorite TV show. Uh, my new favorite TV show. It's on History Channel. It's called Forged in Fire. And uh, especially if you're a guy, it is super cool. Because swords are cool. Um, but in this show, uh, the contestants are challenged to make a blade uh, in kind of their signature style, and they are judged on, on how they did that, uh, form and function. Super cool. Um, I love it. I've learned a lot of, uh, from the show, um, but they, there's a couple different ways you can make a sword or a blade, and uh, you can cut it out with a grinder. You can cut out a shape. Um, and that works, but it's not as strong as it could be. You can, you can uh, uh, melt down the steel and pour it into a mold, cast it. Um, and that's great. It's better than something that's just plain cut out, uh, but it's still not the strongest. Um, the strongest steel comes from forging. And the way they do it, uh, they'll start out on this show with a lump of steel. Uh, sometimes it'll even be an old tool, a lawnmower blade, something like that. But it's not what it's supposed to be. And they're challenged to make it into a particular type of blade. And so they'll heat it and fire it and pound that thing up. And um, it's incredible to watch the blade come out. Because uh, as they're doing it, it's, it's this misshapen lump. And they're hammering away on this. And it, it, it bends and moves and is formed and slowly takes the shape. But you'll see it partway through the process and you're thinking, never going to happen. That thing's just a lousy chunk of metal. Uh, but as they continue to go and they, they heat it back up and they, they pound it out more, it begins to take on its shape. And by the end of the, the time allotted, they've got a pretty cool looking blade. And, and we're blown away sometimes. Um, I kind of <laughs> geek out on the show a little bit. Um, so I actually went to Wikipedia and uh, I want to know a little bit of the science behind what's going on there. How, how do they actually get this strong steel from the forging process? What's happening? Because um, they use some terms on the show that I just didn't understand. Um, and it's, it's incredible uh, in its symbolism or other things as well. Um, but the best kind of steel doesn't come from solid iron. We think of metals as pure being the most valuable of the best. Uh, but it's not. Uh, with iron, if you just have a, an ingot of iron by itself and you hammer that out, it's too soft. Uh, it bends and it mushes. It molds too easily. So they have to have carbonized iron. Uh, usually about 3 to 6% carbon goes into the iron. And it, it does an amazing thing as they're heating it and firing it and making it soft enough to work with, which Incidentally, it is about 2,500 degrees, glowing hot, uh, near molten. And, and they're hammering this out and hitting it with every strike. It moves the metal in different ways. And depending on how the metal started out, it might be a large lump. That, one show up, they started with just a giant steel ball. And it took a lot of hammering to get that thing into any sort of usable shape for a tool. But as they hammer it, uh, this carbonized steel molds out, and, and a, a crazy thing happens. Um, 
They have to, to harden it, they have to quench the blade. They have to cool it rapidly. And this carbon does an amazing thing. Um, as it's hammered out and uniformly spread throughout the blade, uh, it, it, it's dispersed in the iron, and then when it's cooled, those iron molecules form crystals. The, the, the iron and the carbon together form crystals. And uh, imagine a cube kind of stretched out long ways. Uh, and it's, these are so tiny, you can't see them with the naked eye. It takes a microscope to see them. But um, the strongest of the molecules that, that make these, these crystals, uh, these crystals, they have, they have a single molecule in them of this carbonized iron. And there's two different types. There's, there's the, the face-centered molecule, and it has this carbon molecule on the face of it. But the strongest one has it at the center. It's a center-focused um, uh, molecule. And those, those crystals, they, they make these long structures, and as it's cooled rapidly, the, the structures meld together and, and mesh. And there's even imperfections in them that lock together, almost like Tetris, almost like a puzzle piece. Um, and they lock together in this amazing pattern that can, makes it stronger than it would ever be without that carbon in there. Even with what we would consider impurities, it's strengthened. And I draw some, some pretty significant parallels. Maybe you've already gone there um, with our own walk and with those trials and struggles and sometimes even suffering that God is a blacksmith oftentimes puts us through the fire to make us moldable and to shape us into what tool he desires for us to be able to accomplish his purpose. And if I was a piece of iron, if iron could talk, it might not like that process very much. <laughs> but it doesn't stop there. He takes that out and the, the blacksmith has to hammer that out because it's still not the right shape. It's gone through the fire that's, that's made it malleable but it has to be hammered flat and lengthened out. Some of the most beautiful steel ever is a, a steel called Damascus. And uh, it almost has like a wood grain pattern to it. Fabulously stunning. Um, and that one actually takes even more work because it's stretched out far, far longer than your tool would be. And it's folded over, almost cut in half and folded over. And sometimes it's done hundreds of times over before it becomes that, that patterned steel that it's needed. And so for us, oftentimes we're heated up almost to the, to the breaking point. And if you heat, you heat steel too hot, it actually burns. If it's not hot enough, it's not moldable at all. It's just a chunk of steel that you're hammering away on and does not bend. And again, that steel may, may fight back and say, no, ow, that hurts. The, the blacksmith keeps hammering away on it until it's the right shape and form. And then he quenches it. And for me, I see God working on us as the blacksmith. Uh, that carbon is a little bit like the Holy Spirit. And those centered molecules is centered on Christ. And when we're quenched, and we cooperate with the Holy Spirit that lines things up so that we're strengthened in a way that we never could have been before. To me, that's all about trust. I don't know that steel has any trust in the blacksmith. Uh, but for us, certainly that's the case. We trust the blacksmith.
Give Shannon a hand. I thought that was just a fabulous picture of uh, what we're talking about. Would you take your Bibles now? Because we're, we're talking here. What Shannon's pointing out to us in this illustration is that God uses the hard things of life to line us up in ways we never could be otherwise. If you think back to, think through the difficulties you've been through in your life and think about now how God has used that and how that has shaped you and shaped your character. God is trying to encourage us in this character quality of endurance. He's literally forging in us something that's eternal. He's not looking at the present moment. Israel needed to learn endurance, and we need to learn endurance. Uh, And this message in Exodus and Numbers was recorded for us and our children as well. We're given the same admonishment in the New Testament, in numerous places. But let's go to one place in particular and see how this parallels what Shannon just shared with us. If you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. It's a passage many of us are familiar with, but Hebrews chapter 12. And think of that now in terms of this forging process. Hebrews 12, 4 through 6, reads like this. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as father, as a father addresses his son. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone that he accepts as a son. In other words, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, Don't forget in the testing the words of encouragement. That God has promised. What did we realize about Israel? When they got in the desert and when it got difficult, they forgot the promises that God had promised them about the promised land, right? They got locked on the immediate circumstances and threw the promises out the window. God is eternally wise and eternally good. And a loving father disciplines his children. Nothing is random or capricious with God. He means for our good... And he will turn all things for our good. That does not mean that all things that happen to us are good. It simply means a resurrected living God will turn them for our good. And it also doesn't mean that everything we go through will be easy. Uh, Far from it. Uh, If you continue in Hebrews verses 7 and 8, it says this. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father. If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons or daughters at all. They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his, and what's the word there? Holiness. What were the whole issue of the lessons from the desert about? Holiness. We talked about God wants us to be a holy people And he designs things that enable us to grow in this capacity called holiness. And the way you grow in holiness is you go through difficult things and you cooperate with God in the process instead of resisting God in the process. I love when Shannon said the steel probably doesn't like the process it has to go through. You know, if steel had a voice, it'd probably yell, ouch, 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 like that TV commercial, right? 
And yet it's designed to make it into something beautiful, in this case a sword. In us, it's holiness. We will be like God. How do you measure that? Well, verses 10 and 11 give us a way. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. As you look around and you look at our country, you look at our world, uh, it's not the best time in history to be a Christian. But I also suggest to you it's not the worst time in history to be a Christian. This generation will have its moments and places where God is going to use the church in significant ways. Don't ever think the church is dead. When you hear the church is dead in America, that is one of the most preposterous statements ever made. Here's why. You can't kill the Holy Spirit. All right? You cannot kill the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not done. All right? The Holy Spirit is still working and the church is the bride of Christ and He is forging what He wants out of the bride. Now the question is whether we'll cooperate or not. Whether we'll be a great people, a people of holiness, or whether we'll cave in like Israel did and whine and yell and scream in the desert. And of course the encouragement is that we would not do that. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but... Rather, what's the word there? Painful. Later on, though, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. You know, and, and this is so true. I grew up in a farm in Wisconsin baling hay, right? And sometimes we baled 4,000 bales a week. And let me tell you, I was not a happy camper when I found out I had to get up at 4 in the morning and get that process started. I didn't wake up going, yes, discipline, awesome. This is so cool. My father actually didn't really ask me what I thought about the process. And to be truthfully honest, he really didn't care what I thought about the process. Okay? He had to get the hay in the barn and his job was to use whatever tools and assets, i.e. his sons, to get that process done. He was going to do it. Uh, we once told Dad, you should get a dishwasher. He says, I have one. Uh, he says, it's, I've got eight of them. They're called Armstrong. Okay? You didn't get that, right? Okay. It was us instead of... And that's how it worked. And I, I look back on that, and at the time it was hot and dusty and sweaty, and I can remember times going just mad, throwing bales, right? And uh, just this miserable process in summer and grumbling and griping, and the words up in the haymaw were not Christian words, right? And yet when I look back on it, what do I look back on that really shaped me? What gave me endurance? What gave me the toughness that I have. It was that forging in the furnace. Sometimes the heat in those lofts when you're billing hay was 185 degrees. We're talking furnace. All right? As I look back, it shaped things in me that otherwise would have never been shaped. And I realize the same thing is exactly true of the Christian life. The very difficult things that I've had to go through since I've known Jesus and agreed to try and cooperate and walk with them. Those very difficult things have been the very things where I've seen the Lord the clearest. As I look back, I can tell that's when He was actually close to me. So why should that be any different now? And yet somehow I freak out. Somehow I've never been this far before. Somehow, uh, again? No, no, we already did that. Any of the rest of you like that? Right? Like, no, no, teach somebody else that. I've learned that already. Right? Any of you? No, it's just me? Okay, well... It's having the long eye on faith. All right? You know, this morning you're saying, well, how are you wrapping this round, Steve? Because you haven't said a, much about Palm Sunday or what Jesus did. I want to suggest to you, Jesus had this very quality. I want to suggest to you on Palm Sunday as we celebrate the historic event of Jesus riding into Jerusalem 
on a donkey, he knew exactly what he was about to face. And he didn't whine, and he didn't cry, and he didn't pout, and he didn't yell about how unfair it was. It says he looked at it with endurance. And he asked his father for the endurance to face it. Go to his prayers in Gethsemane and you get a, a clear picture of this. But what was he able to do that we so often miss? He was able to see past the present, past the present circumstances, and he could see the glory that was going to follow. He knew if he just trusted his father that it would turn out for good. And I want to suggest this morning on Palm Sunday, 2017, we are, as his children, asked to do the same thing. It is called a faith. Okay? It's not so much a religion as it is a faith. A faith in what God has called us to do, what he's asked of us to do. By the way, teenagers, you don't pick it up just because your mom and dad are Christians. Right? Being in a garage doesn't make you a car. Okay? And being in a church doesn't make you a Christian. We are asked to do the same thing. We're asked to learn endurance. How many places in the New Testament, those of you who read it, are you asked for endurance, to be steadfast, and to persevere? Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It does not say it produces wimpiness. Right? Those tests are methodically chosen by God, brilliantly chosen by God. Matter of fact, if you think about it and you say, well, how do I know there's a God? Just look at your trials. How specifically are they targeted for you? You notice that your trials aren't your friend's trials? You notice that your trials aren't your husband or wife's trials? Like they somehow target you specifically? Gee, what a concept. Right? That's because they do. I want to suggest this morning as we head towards Easter that endurance takes time, that endurance takes patience. By the way, if you haven't figured that lesson out yet, you need to start learning it. That endurance takes faith, but maybe more than all, endurance takes obedience. When you get to that point of the game, joy is a choice. You either choose the joy of the Lord and you lean into it or you let the circumstances wreck you. And the question this morning as we head towards Easter is what kind of people will we be? Let's pray. Father, that's a rhetorical question. My friends know that. That's a speaking tool. They've heard many such pastors and other people use those kind of prayers and those kind of tools. And um, if they're like me, their defenses are up and armed just like mine would be. But this morning, I would ask a favor, Lord. I would ask, where is your voice in that? And have they heard you? Have they heard you speaking to them? And if so, on what point? And if so, how? What would you like them to do and how would you like them to respond? We ask for that this morning, Lord, that you would... It's probably something we're already in. It's probably something we already know. May we just accordingly to your word. And we give this to you in your name. Amen. Just stand, please.